So one of the coolest things that happened as part of our campaign was when Kim Kardashian got called out on social media. I think the quote was that her friend said, the world's plastic pollution is in the Kardashian household refrigerator. So they went from the straw to everything that gets purchased in a home pretty quickly. And then it started a conversation among the Kardashian clan and their audience. And that's why I think the straw was so powerful. Something so tiny, like maybe we make these environmental issues too big and too heavy. It's everything you have to give up. You have to take public transportation. You have to buy reused clothes. It's the solar panels on your house. You've got to buy the right car. Oh, don't buy a car. Don't even have a car. Just bike and walk your children to school. Like there's buy organic food. Go to the farmer's market. There's all this stuff that you have to do and all the stuff you have to give up. But we have to start simply if we're going to engage people. And we have to give them something that's really fun where they can have success. And then they'll naturally take that next step on their own because they're so excited to share what they've been successful at. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. If you've heard about avoiding straws, or if you've avoided straws yourself, Do Knives and the Lonely Whale, the organization she's the executive director of, have influenced you. If you've asked yourself, why straws? Or what the point was, that's what you wanted. For people actually to talk about things on a human scale, as opposed to things that are so big that people can't really figure out how to talk about them or to act on them. If you've taken the next step from straws, Lonely Whale has influenced you all the more. As you'll hear, when she co-founded Lonely Whale, she didn't know the demand that was out there and she found some untapped demand. She just started something and finding one change led to another and another and got really big support. If you've been thinking about starting something environmentally, now may be the time. Lonely Whale helped change my views about straws and other small changes, that they aren't about the one act any more than playing some piano scale is too small to learn to play the piano. That's how we learn. So listen on, you'll hear some big names mentioned. Besides the Kardashians, you'll hear about co-founder Adrian Grenier and Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodok. I'm here with Dune Ives of The Lonely Whale. How are you doing, Dune? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. How are you? It's nice to be on the program. I'm great. And I, I hear a smile in your voice that um, were you doing well before the getting on here? You just, you sound like a happy person. Well, I think I'm naturally happy, but I'm also glad the elections are over. I feel, um, you know, at least we know, we know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I don't have the anxiety that I had prior to the elections and it's sunny outside. So what's not to be happy about? <laughs> Good enough for me. Yeah. Actually, the, the lonely whale it's grown a lot from where it began. And you guys do a lot of different things. I could imagine someone being frustrated at the world that we live in. And can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I'll put up the description on the webpage, but how did you guys begin? What's the lonely whale? And I don't even know, is is this particular whale still around? He is. As far as we know, he's still out there swimming. As far as we know, he's still out there swimming by himself. Although we do have hope that he actually has a lot of friends. Uh 
and he's not so lonely. He's just, he's just like singing a lot is what we like to think. But uh, so Lonely Well was started almost three years ago. So December is our three year anniversary. It was formed out of uh, this desire to give people who are really interested in learning more about the story of this Lonely Well, which is this real creature that swims up and down the Pacific by himself, supposedly for about 35, 40 years calling out at a frequency that no other whale has ever been known to sing at before or since he was discovered. And whales sing for companionship. Whales sing for a lot of reasons, but male whales sing for companionship. And so the story was just really captivating for people because you can imagine everyone has been isolated or has felt loneliness at some point in their lives, right? Like you've had a voice and you've called out and no matter how loud you are, no matter how many times you repeat yourself, there's no answer back. And so there can be this real sense of loneliness and a, a desire to belong to community. And all the while with this whale, we keep throwing stuff in its way. So instead of it literally just like thriving, it's just trying to survive because we make it louder with seismic blasting and increased shipping traffic. We make it dirty, hot, we're acidifying it. And now we're throwing plastic in its way. And so when Adrian Grenier and Lucy Sumner, our co-founders, started telling the story, about this lonely whale, we had an Instagram following of almost 30,000 people overnight. Mm. And they were all asking the question of, well, how do I help solve for this? How do I get involved and how can I help his existence be better? And so they decided to start the Lonely Well, which is a, it's a foundation dedicated to, originally it was bringing people together to create a healthy ocean. And what we've realized we're really good at over the last three years is we're really good at taking risks. We're really good at being courageous and trying to find the gaps in ocean health, particularly through the lens of plastic pollution, to solve for it at scale so we can all really get engaged and stay engaged in this issue. So it was no one's goal at the beginning. They just found out about the whale and started sharing about it. And it turns out that that tapped into something. That's right. It was not a goal of Adrian and Lucy's to start a foundation. They didn't wake up one day and say, you know what we should do today? We should start another foundation. Uh We should add to the more than 20,000 environmental organizations globally and add one more. Nobody started out with that goal. What they really wanted to do was to uncover the story of this whale and to tell the whale's story on its behalf. And when they did that, people really flocked to the whale and they thought, well, there's something here. You know, and now we have this responsibility to actually give the people what they want, which is tell me what to do. Help me become part of this whale's future and help me lean in to helping to make the ocean a healthier place for him. So when you were talking about the whale going up and down the coast, you, you talked about acidification and plastics and warming and all these different things. And I guess a whale kind of captures that. Maybe all life, you pick any life form and it's going to, we're, we're impinging it all. And actually, you also, you had a lot of background. You, you didn't come out of nowhere. And your story is as interesting. How did you, how did Lonely Whale find you and what were you doing at the time? So when I, when I met Adrian, who I met first, uh, it was through a mutual friend, through our dear friend, Susan Rockefeller, who knew me when I worked for Mr. Paul Allen, who is the co-founder of Microsoft and sadly has since passed away, um, which is a great loss for all of us globally. He's a big thinker and really passionate and really cared deeply about, about making the planet a better place, really optimistic. And so I had the great fortune of developing he and his sister Jody's global environmental philanthropic portfolio while I was at Vulcan. So Ocean Health was one of my programs. We also focused on climate change, wildlife trafficking. We led the Ebola campaign 
when Ebola was such a crisis a few years ago and arts and education. And, you know, what I really took away from Paul and working with him, a billionaire, right? One of the richest people in the world who realized that it doesn't matter how much money he threw into the problem. At the end of the day, until you and I start caring about the ocean, it's never going to change. We actually have to fundamentally be connected to the ocean. We're from the ocean. We're from the water. But we have to find a way to get connected to the ocean and in doing so, connect back to each other and actually really begin to care about our existence on this planet. And then his philanthropic money or then corporate engagement can really make a difference. And so when I met Adrian and then Lucy, we found that we shared this, this common interest in trying to find a way to connect people to the ocean. It's so critical for our survival, and yet none of us really even think about it on a daily basis. You know, your accent there was on the ocean. I felt, I, I felt the, the accent on the ocean, although the connection part to me is also really big, that a lot of people talk to me about, hey, I know someone who works at this organization. I know someone who works at that organization, like an environmental organization. You should have them on. They're doing some composting thing or something like that. And oftentimes I decline, not because I don't support them, but that a lot of people are spreading facts and knowledge and telling people, there's a lot of people telling people what to do and not so much on the connection part and not so much on the leadership, in my language, the, the leadership part of not just, you know, the earth is going to fall apart if we don't do our part and you better do your part. And that's not the message that I hear from you. The message I hear from you is there's a connection to be made. And there's, to me, there's a joy in connecting with the environment, not being so disconnected as we are. Am I, am I reading too much into you guys or you personally and you guys? You're not reading too much into us at all. I think, I don't know that we're unique in understanding that connectivity matters so much. We can't be anonymous to each other. We actually have to look at each other. We have to know each other. We have to talk to each other. We have to care about, you know, whether or not our neighbor even, you know, things like, can they, can they actually afford to buy diapers for their children? Like we should know that as a species. We should actually really care about our, our neighbors. And yet most of us go through our daily existence and we never even say hi to our neighbors. And, and so when we, when we think about this, this common pool resource, which is the ocean, and even air and land and trees, there's such, I think, a, a strong desire to think short term. That's how we're kind of wired, right? Is to think short term and what's mine and what's right in front of me and what can I solve for today. We have so many issues that we have to deal with as an individual. I'm a mom. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a friend. I'm a human. I'm an individual. I'm a wife. And on a daily basis, there's so many big things to try to tackle. And I can't tackle any of them by myself. And I think when you, I think when you have that, that level of understanding and that ability and I think desire to lean in with humility, I think you can be really open to other people's perspectives and opinions and thoughts and ideas. I mean, you'll never hear us at Lonely Well tell anybody what they should or shouldn't do, ever. My husband always tells me nobody likes to be shit upon, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which is true. <laughs> I think it's a huge disaster. Not, not a huge, how do I put it? I think it's really counterproductive that a lot of people do. I think there's a strong message of you, but not me, should change. And I think it's... That's I, right. I we don't have a top 10 list. We don't have a top 10 things for you to do. We don't even have the top 30 things for you to do. Our ask of people and where we try to make space from an environmental standpoint is to tell us what inspires you. Help us learn from you. We're going to give you a platform and we're going to make it available to you to lean in with us. But we don't want to dictate for you 
how you stop sucking. <laughs> we just want you to stop sucking, but you have to define that on your own. It's not up to us to define that for you. That's one of your and, hashtags. And we all have to. That's one of our hashtags is hashtag stop sucking, which, which really, you know, it was straws, but it was always intended to say, you know, there's an ocean out there, first and foremost. Let's just be aware that it exists. Let's just start there. Let's just start there. I don't need to tell you that you need to do beach cleanup. I don't need to tell you that that's the only thing that's going to work in this world to, to create a healthy planet. But let's just start by understanding there's an ocean and that you and I depend on that ocean for survival. And you and I are screwing it up also. And then how you choose to express that is up to you. But what we want to do is we want to support you. And it's a lot of what we try to do also in this concept we have called radical collaboration, where every single thing we do has to have at least one NGO partner or other partners. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we did the, the initiative Next Wave, where we have nine global corporations working together to try to solve for this plastic pollution crisis. It's not what we as an individual organization are doing with IKEA separately or Dell or HP or Interface. It's what they can do together. And they get to define it. And we're really there to support and nurture and guide it. It you've really drives us on a daily basis. You've tapped into something that I haven't talked about for a while on this podcast, which is that over and over again, when I find effective leaders, it's always about the others. It's, you know, I think people have a, from movies and stuff, they think of, of leadership as being about telling people what to do. And it's what the leader wants. But the, effect, the more effective the leader, I find the more that it's really about helping others. It's really about supporting others. And uh, you've, you, which is something of what you just said. There's a couple of questions I want to ask you. One is, is about the story of you getting started with The Lonely Whale and also how The Lonely Whale has, has evolved into lots of other things. And another question, I'm going to start with this one. Plastics, uh, straws, plastic straws. On the one hand, I know my answer for this. I'm curious yours. Straws are kind of small. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of them. But how much of a difference is if we got of all the straws, all the plastic straws? It's not that big of a difference. So what's the point? I'm, I'm asking that's it. That's the point. <laughs> I, 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 the reason I'm asking is people the say. The point is that's the point. What do you mean? So my favorite articles are the ones that start by saying, uh, hello, didn't you know the plastic stars aren't the problem? And we say, uh-huh, we did. Tell us what's the problem. Tell us. And, and so part of the, the straw campaign for us was we really wanted to, we just really wanted to create space for people to talk about plastic pollution. We, it wasn't about the straw. The straw is not a problem. The straw is a gateway, right? The straw allows you and I to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And for us to pick something, it, it's the only single use plastic item out there that we could find that had a readily available, easy to implement on day one alternative and that was just to refuse one. Yeah. You don't have to use one. That's it, right? You don't have to like remember to bring your straw. A restaurant doesn't have to buy a bunch of straws that are better for the environment. Like it, it, None of that has to happen. You could just say, nope, I don't want to have a straw today. And in doing that and taking that very, very small step forward, you can be successful. Everybody can be successful. You can have success on day one. You don't have to feel bad that once again, your reusable bags are at home. Or once again, you forgot that, that coffee tumbler or it spilled in your bag again. Or like me, you lost your reusable water bottle again. You don't have to feel bad about it. You can just be successful. But the other thing that we wanted to do is, is we wanted to provoke a conversation about, is it the straw? No, it's not the straw. Yes, it's the straw. Like, yes, of course, it's in the top 10 items found on beach cleanups on an annual basis globally. 
Yes, there are a lot of single-use plastic straws used on a daily basis, and zero of them are recyclable. Yes, it's a problem. We shouldn't be using them unless you have to have one for medical purpose, and we get that, and we respect that, but it's not straw. It's about our relationship to single-use plastic, and the straw allows us to diffuse the tension associated with plastic pollution and to have a conversation. Something as simple as a little straw can start a movement. How does it feel to see it grow into such a big thing? It's so shocking on a daily basis. I just got an email today and somebody said, I'm in Cambridge right now at this leadership forum and we're talking about things that wowed us in 2018 and well, your straw campaign came up. Or somebody was at Summit in LA and they said, yep, people have said strawless can stop sucking three times in the last hour. And and for us, you know, we're a tiny team. We're just a team of three people. That's all we are. We're, we're just tiny and we'll probably stay tiny for a long time. And, and we're just, gosh, we just feel really, we feel really good because it, you know, we have worked seven days a week. We have worked every single day for the last two and a half years. And, and we take, sometimes we laugh we're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to take, I'm going to take Saturday off. <laughs> Don't call me <laughs> on Saturday. <laughs> you know, so it feels really good too, because we just, we've, we've really poured our heart and soul into it. And there were a lot of people who who really opened up their networks to us and, and really made this possible. And we're really just thrilled that we can deliver this on their behalf and with them. So we're grateful. Um, we're shocked. We're shocked to see the memes still. Uh-huh. My funny, the funniest one was this one for Halloween, where uh, apparently a girl walks in to, uh, to a Halloween party, someone walks in in a turtle costume, walks over to somebody that has a glass, a beverage with a straw in it, takes the straw out, throws it on the ground and says, that one's for my homies. Like it's, still, it won't stop. The straw thing just won't stop. So we're humbled by it. We're very humbled. It's amazing. I, I'm going to tell you my view on straws because I get that a lot too of like, what difference does it make? And here's my view is that uh, doing the small things gives you the skills to do the bigger things. And if you're stuck on the straws, it's tough to do the other things. Like say, if you get coffee a lot, the, the cup is harder to handle than the straw. If you don't play scales, it's hard to play musical pieces. And so you got to start with the scales. But, and if you say, there's no point in playing scales because that's not really music, you're never going to get to the real music. And so I think of it as learning skills. And the more that you learn the skills, the more that becomes automatic. And once it's automatic to do the straws, then it eventually becomes automatic to bring the bag with you when you go shopping. And once that's automatic, you don't even think of taking uh, public transportation. I mean, you, you go to public transportation automatically and you don't, you know, all the other things. Cause That's right. Look, That's exactly right. People look at me like I took this train across the country instead of flying. And they're like, how, how can you do that? I'm like, for me, it's actually easy. It's actually beneficial. I could prefer it. But I couldn't have gotten there without the avoiding packaging food. And I couldn't have gotten there without avoiding these other things. And you work your way up the ladder. And I'd like the way you put it. It's a success. You get a success. Like, no thanks for the straw done. <laughs> you got enough. That's right. And I, and, and everything is so big and so heavy in our lives. You know, it's, it's, I, on a daily basis, we're dealing with relatives that have cancer or not having enough money or the car breaks down again, or, you know, whatever, there's always something in our lives that's really big and heavy and hard. And I honestly, I really feel like we make these environmental issues too heavy and too hard. They're too heavy and they're too hard. And, and so we're, we're really constantly challenging ourselves to see, can we lighten it up a little bit? 
How much more humility and humor can we build into this so that we can at least just engage somebody in a conversation about it? So, I think it's really important to do. So when you say we make it heavy and hard, we, humanity, not necessarily we, lonely well, because I feel like your, your goal I, is to make it more lighthearted. Humanity makes it heavy and hard. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we, when we, so when I joined Lonely Well, it was about six months into the existence of the organization, I guess maybe four months into the existence. And, and the other thing that Lucy and Adrian and I really were, you know, we saw eye to eye on was that NGOs and scientists, and this is from my former experience too, working for Paul, we like to, to state the facts. We like to get the facts exactly right. You know, it's, it's so important that it could stand up to the test of time and through a peer-reviewed process. But that's not how you and I talk to each other. And that certainly isn't how brands talk to us, right? If you think about what motivates you in your life to do things that you do, to buy whatever you buy, to take the train versus the plane, whatever it is, there is some marketing message somewhere that is helping you make that decision. I guarantee it, right? And marketers know us better than we know ourselves. They know before we want to buy something, right? That we are like, oh, we need is that new car or that jacket or those shoes or the phone. Give me a new phone. And so the other thing that we decided to do at Lonely Well early on was to try to think and act like a brand. So how is a brand going to sell a healthy ocean to you in a way that has stickiness and lastingness? Right? How, how do we do that? We don't do that by creating our own campaigns internally. We actually hire the best firms out there that global brands will hire. It's expensive. But I think that's one of the reasons why our Stop Sucking campaign was so successful. I mean, it was grit, determination, will. You know, we, we put a lot of effort into it and we, we got lucky in a couple of situations. But we also realized that if we're going to sell a healthy environment and a healthy planet as a brand, as a concept even, and get people to engage in it. We have to talk to people the way that brands talk to people. Otherwise, we're like pushing a wet noodle up a hill. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge of uh, something that someone pointed out to me recently was that I haven't presented a vision of the future. And it's, it really helps people to see it's not just not doing X, it's also going toward something different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, brands are really good at that. Brands are really good at creating a vision of, of, of communicating. and. I'm glad to hear that you're doing it. How's it working? Is it, and was that a difficult decision? I mean, now that you say it, it makes a lot of sense. But I can imagine you saying, well, if we're doing what they're doing, maybe it's not so effective or something like that. What's the story behind it of that decision? The decision was easy. That uh, Where we found a little bit of challenge is who we tried to get bought in at the beginning. Um, so, so for as much as we say radical collaboration is the core of how we operate, it doesn't mean that it's easy to do. In fact, collaboration is really difficult. It's really tricky. And, and it takes a lot of patience and a lot of openness and a lot of humility. And with Stop Sucking, you know, we shopped that name around to NGOs because we really wanted being the new kid on the block. We, you know, we, it was really important to us that we got feedback and input from folks. Uh-huh. By and large, everybody hated it. <laughs> People would say, you can't say that. You can't say Stop Sucking. And we're like, well... I don't know. Like, I think we can because I want to tell people to stop sucking all the time. Uh (laughs) Why wouldn't, why can't we use that? I feel like we can use it. Or they would say boomers won't say that or, you know, Gen X probably won't say it. And 
And so what was difficult for us, it wasn't the decision, it wasn't the process to get there. We knew it when we heard it. We knew when when we landed on Stop Sucking as a team, we knew that was it. Because it can go all sorts of different directions. We didn't know where it would go, but we knew that was it. What was difficult was giving ourselves permission to take the risk and to not listen to the voices of other organizations, but really being willing to live on the edge and to, and to play it out. And maybe we failed, right? But we don't want to play it safe because I feel like, you know, if all the organizations that are out there focus on environmental stewardship, our ocean keeps declining, species keep declining, insects keep declining. The timber stands, the health of our land or soils, air keeps declining. So we have to be willing to take risks. But that was hard for us to like give ourselves permission to do it. That was the hardest part. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff out there that's not working. And a lot of people keep doing what doesn't work. And yeah, you're going to make mistakes. I don't have to tell you that. Everyone listening knows if you take risks, you're going to make mistakes. But how else? When things stagnate, how else are you going to get off the stagnation? I like that you're talking like leaders, not necessarily like just because a lot of people out there, they're, like, they're passionate and they're more venting than being effective. Uh, I'm curious if you take risks, are there any of the risks that you took? Any stories behind them? Well, let me tell you um, some feedback we got from somebody who I respect greatly. His name will remain unnamed, but he'll, he'll remember the story when I play back the podcast for him. But I was, I was at a, a dinner one night and I was chatting with a colleague of mine and, and I mentioned you know, I got some early feedback actually from um, Primal Shaw, who is the, the founder of Kiva, which I, I really admire and greatly respect that organization. And he said, Dune, you know, in your first three years, don't even create a strategic plan. Your job is to try 100 things, a thousand things and see what works. Just test, 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 test. And I said to my friend, I said, he goes, how's it going? I'm like, well, we haven't failed yet. And he looked at me and he goes, well, then you're not trying hard enough. Mm-hmm. So really great feedback. Right. And, and what it did for me is it, it made me like, I, I, I stopped. Like I am never, it, it's very difficult to find a situation where I have a shortage of words, where I don't have something to say or a comeback. Those who know me well will agree with <laughs> what I just said. Uh, I was at a loss for words. And I looked at him and I was like, I need you on my board. I need you now. You're the only one who's ever told me that. And I need for you now to push me harder because you're right. If, we, if we're not failing, and I, I would say we haven't failed yet. We haven't, we haven't done anything yet that hasn't, I mean, it's turned out differently than what we expected. It's actually turned out to be a lot better and bigger and more impactful than we envisioned. But honestly, maybe we're not thinking big enough. Maybe we're, we're playing it safe, even in this space where we are allowing ourselves to take risks. And we're not actually trying hard enough to solve for the real issues and the systemic issues. Um, so it, that's what we're, we've been really wrestling with that this last year is how do, we, how do we actually have the kind of impact and the staying power that we know we need to have? Now you're we're not talking, satisfied. Now you're talking even more like a leader because the leaders that I talk to, the more vulnerable they are, the more effective they are as leaders, the more vulnerable they are in sharing, like, I'm not living up to my own potential. I made these mistakes. Yeah, a lot of people don't say what you just said. I'm curious of... Uh, well, I don't want to get into your operations or your ideas, but I want to go back a, a step. You, you mentioned the summit, which I, I just came from, and I'm going to share with you a frustration. Well, not a frustration. There was a lot of pollution going on there. They had all these sponsors. There's like a lot of plastic, and they're giving out all these water bottles. I'm like, not one of these is necessary. So for a while, I was really annoyed because if I talk to anyone there, if I don't talk about, if I don't just say what I just said, if I just say, 
are you environmental? They're like, yeah, you know, how, what about you in the environment? They're like, oh, I'm very conscious about that. It's something very important to me. But they're behaving like everybody else. So they had these water bottles that were like somehow, I don't know, 70% less material than others or recyclable or something like that. And I'm like, not one of them is necessary. I had to take a picture of this water fountain, which was bone dry, while <laughs> people are using all these water bottles. So anyway, so I don't want to just complain. So I met the founder, Elliot, and his mom, and we're talking a bunch. And I say, you know, I'd like to be a part of next year because look, you guys have come farther than a lot of other organizations. I'm sure if I went to, I don't know, Ted or Burning Man or something like that, then there'd be a lot more garbage. Well, I guess Burning Man, people would take their own garbage out. The CO2 would be insane. And people flew to this thing. Like no one connects their flying to it. And so I said, I'd like to be part of being involved next year. I don't know. Are you connected with them at all? Or do you just happen to hear from someone from there? I, it was one of my board members who went to, to Summit. We've never been to Summit. And for a variety of reasons, I do agree with you. I went to a meeting. I won't name the name of the organization, but it was a bunch of environmental people coming together. And it was in Flint, Michigan. So water crisis in Flint. So I show up, I, I rock up in Flint, Michigan with my reusable water bottle. Can't refill it anywhere. Like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know. I'm thirsty. I'm so thirsty. I don't know if I should drink coffee and, you know, people are drinking water. Like, it's like, there's nothing wrong. And I, so I'm confused. And I have my reusable water bottle that goes empty, bone dry for two days. And I am on this panel talking about plastics. And right in front of me is a single use plastic water bottle. And somebody asked, one of the members, audience members asked, like, what do we all think about having these plastic water bottles in front of us while we're here in Flint, Michigan, that has a water crisis and talking about plastic. And my response was, I'm extremely thirsty. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I haven't opened it, you know, but it allowed a conversation with the organizers that you can't have these styrofoam cups for coffee and you, you can't have a, a polystyrene lid and you just can't have single-use plastic water bottles. Like, I think people are so awakened now to this that it's weird, right? Like when you go to Summit, it's weird to see plastic. But I don't think anyone has has really had a chance to kind of stop and say, well, where does plastic exist in our lives? Like fully. When they do, they do things like Dell. So Dell Computers, which started the Next Wave program with us, they eliminated single-use plastic water bottles, cups, straws from all of their venues and their events this last year. 65,000 of them at an event that they held in Las Vegas in the spring. Because now they're looking. Winter eyes are open. Yeah. But, right? Like once your eyes are open, you're like, oh my God, it's everywhere. I can't go to the grocery store. Why is that English cucumber wrapped in plastic? Yeah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, Let where it free. that's where I am and that's where you are. I have to say, we would have been a tiny minority at Summit because actually I take it back. Because mm-hmm. when I talk to people and I say, I was saying, you know, if, if next year, if I were involved and the emails in preparation for this said, you got to bring your own water bottle and you got to bring your own cutlery. Would that be making you more, less, or neutrally interested in coming next year? And there were a few were neutral, but most were like, oh, I'd be more interested. That would make me more likely to come. It's not a hardship for me to do that. And yeah, I think people kind of get it. Once I was was doing an event in New York and the, the event organizer, we were meeting at a coffee shop and she's talking to me and she's saying, you know, people, they're, they're not even aware of how they use stuff that, that pollutes. Okay. As she's saying this, she's holding a single use coffee paper cup that she's <laughs> going to throw away after one use. And it's like next to her face. Like her, like she's sitting at her elbows on the table and the cup is next to her. And I'm like, how is this not on your radar? 
So, and I didn't say it to her because I don't want to make her feel bad at the time. I didn't think, I couldn't think of a way of saying it without making her feel bad. And later I brought it up and she was like mortified. But then she said, (laughs) she went the next several, she knew, she knew my podcast and she said, all right, I'm going to go for, I forget how long, like a month without getting any plastic bags. And so the next time I saw her, I think she'd used three where normally she would have gone through about 50. Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, people do seem to want to become more aware. I think a lot of people are caught thinking they're aware. Well, this is a post I made a while ago. People are aware of what they're aware of and everyone is aware of what they're aware of. No one's aware of what they're not aware of. So to say I'm aware is actually mean, like everybody could say that. And it's, it doesn't actually mean anything because everyone is aware of what they're aware of and everyone is unaware of what they're unaware of. And therefore it's a statement like it doesn't mean anything. Well, and so let's go back to the straw campaign. So we knew So where our straw campaign originated from is every time I went out uh, with Adrian for coffee or dinner or lunch in the early days, every single time he would walk in and he would immediately say, please don't bring any straws to this table. And I was always like, what is with this dude? (laughs) What is the straw? Like, what is this thing that he keeps like, why the straw? And then what started happening and what we started to see is that it created a conversation. I mean, one, because he's a celebrity, right? And in certain areas, like people just know him. I never saw Entourage, so I didn't, I didn't understand at the time. Uh-huh. Um, so people, you know, sitting next to us would say, well, what about the straw? Like they'd overhear and they would literally ask him, no, what about the straw? And so it gave him an opportunity. And then it gave all of us an opportunity to talk about the straw. And when you're sitting at a table and you're the only one who takes a straw and everybody else around the table looks at you like you're from planet, whichever you're from Pluto. It's no longer, is that, I don't know, I can't remember, is it a planet now again? I hope so. Um, But you're from Pluto. Then there's definitely the social renorming that happens, but there's also a conversation and it's not just interpersonal, it's on social media. So one of the coolest things that happened as part of our campaign was when Kim Kardashian got called out on social media by one of her friends. I think that, I think the quote was that her friend said, um, the world's plastic pollution is in the Kardashian household refrigerator. So they went from the straw to everything that gets purchased in a home pretty quickly. And then it started a conversation among the Kardashian clan and their audience. And, and that's why I think the straw was so powerful. Something so tiny, like maybe we make these environmental issues too big and too heavy. It's everything you have to give up, right? You have to take public transportation. You have to buy reused clothes. It's the solar panels on your house. You've got to buy the right car. Oh, don't buy a car. Don't even have a car. Just bike and walk your children to school. Like there's, there's buy organic food, go to the farmer's market. Like there's all this stuff that you have to do and all the stuff you have to give up. But we have to, we have to start simply if we're going to engage people and we have to give them something that's really fun where they can have success. And then they'll naturally take that next step on their own because they're so excited to share what they've been successful at. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So you're sharing something. Yeah, you're giving them like an on-ramp to an access to doing something, succeeding, and then they can succeed at the next thing. And you're also touching on something that I think is what's driving my podcast is that I think 
you know, the number one predictor, I read this somewhere, the number one predictor of someone having solar on their roof is not their environmental position. It's not how much money they're going to save. It's if their neighbor has it. And community mm-hmm. motivates more than all the facts in the world. And for, you know, for reasons that make a whole lot of sense, there's been a lot of science and spreading facts and doom and gloom that you can see why that would be the case. But in actual effective, some, that will influence a lot of people because a lot of people want to be influenced. But there's, that leaves the remaining 90 some per, something percent. That's just my estimation. Of, and what's going to motivate them mm-hmm. is not the stuff that hasn't worked for them. More of the same isn't going to work for them. And the reason I have leadership in the environment, I, like I'm trying to get leaders. I'm trying to get people who are effective and, and that people follow. Because Adrian is in, he's a neighbor for a lot of people. And when he does something, then it's difficult to maintain. If I act, but no one else does, then what I do doesn't make a difference. When someone in your community is acting, and that's why I try to bring the most influential people, the most well-known people, because then people in your world are changing. It's not just you. I also think there's a big hole. There's a big gap of well-known people. It's very rare. I think Adrian's in a small minority of people who are actually changing their behavior. And another piece that you didn't mention, but no, I'm sorry, you did mention, but not just now. It's, I thought by avoiding packaged food, it would be deprivation and sacrifice. And it was the opposite. My food is more delicious than ever. And I used to go to the farmer's market. And I was like, I don't know what the, my sister worked there. And I was like, I don't know what this stuff is. I don't know what kohlrabi is. And <laughs> but once I started, I love them. Oh my God, kohlrabi? I can't keep in the oh, house. Oh, kohlrabi's the best. Oh my God. Is it a little baba ganoush? <laughs> I, yeah. People are like, what do you make with those eggplants that you buy at the farmer's market? <laughs> yeah. Or better yet, that you grow in your backyard. No, I, I mean, I think you're right about that. There's um, the other person that I've experienced that I think has a very similar, I think, ability to kind of own, own their space and look for everything that they can possibly do to improve their house is and their livelihood is is Alec and Alaria Baldwin. So I was on a I was on stage with Alec in East Hamptons this summer for a panel on plastic pollution. And while while he's on stage, his wife is in the audience. Ilaria is in the audience texting him, no, no, talk about the FICA plan. <laughs> <laughs> talk about this. Talk about these other things we're doing because they're so committed. You know, I think I think another defining characteristic is when you can, when you have children you can't help but want, I kind of get choked up when I talk about this. I have a four and a half year old son and I have a 26 year old daughter and I, it kills me. It kills me that my son will probably never see a shark while diving, you oh, know, and it, and it kills yeah. me too, that those two will never see the beautiful colors of coral that I've been blessed to see and never see that pelagic 15 foot wingspan spotted eagle ray come out of the depths. You know, and so when I, when I think about the work that I do, I'm very realistic. I'm very realistic about I'm, I'm not saving the world. I'm not saving the planet. I'm not changing everything that needs to be changed. But I want my son and I want my daughter to see how hard I'm trying. I want them to know that their mom is out there every single day. Everything I do is really to try to make, try to make the most difference I can possibly make. And so I spent a lot of time on the road. I spent a lot of time away. I spent a lot of time at work. And I'm not going to stop that. I know I'm not going to solve the problem, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight as hard as I possibly can. And if there's something that we can do at Lonely Well that sparks a place of joy and hope and spirit in the heart of one individual, 
that they want to do something and then they want to invite a friend and they want to do something else, then I feel like we're winning the battle. You know, I feel like we're actually, we can make a difference. And so we try really hard to do the right thing. And we're also very realistic, you know, about, about how hard it is. And we just keep going, you know, we keep going and we keep pressing ourselves and we keep inviting people to join us. I mean, if you were at our, our Lonely Well Gala a few weeks ago mm-hmm. to see the kind of people who came together, it's a really, it's a really diverse group. I mean, uh, we had people walk away going, wow, you have some really interesting characters and like people from all different walks of life, because we know that we need Alaria Baldwin. Just as much as we need Adrian, just as much as we need that high school student, just as much as we need these four corporations and these six influencers and these 10 schools and these 50 organizations. And we have to just let our barriers down and be willing to be willing to be vulnerable, willing to admit when we don't know the answer so that we can get more input and we can get more people joining forces. And once people join, correct me if I'm wrong, once they join, they don't want to go back and they wish they'd joined earlier over and over again. Like, cause I have people on this podcast. I ask them to do something they haven't done before. And almost across the board, they come back and like, it was either, either they said it was easier than they thought and wish they'd done it earlier or the challenge was a challenge that they wanted to do. And they wish they wish they'd done it earlier. And yeah, it's, it, you don't want to go back. So a lot of people associate this stuff with guilt and blame. And I don't feel guilty for something that happened before I was born. Like the world has a lot of problems in it. I felt guilty when I didn't do anything. Once I started doing something, I know I can't do as much as I'd like to. I can't do everything. I can't fix the world's, all the world's problems myself. But once I'm doing what I can, the guilt, it's not part of the game. It's like, it's enthusiasm and opportunity. I mean, if I'd messed everything up, I'd probably feel pretty guilty. But I was born into a world with lots of these systems that are work the way they do. And I didn't create them. And even the people who created the systems who expected that humans could affect the whole planet? It's reasonable for, to, for them to have thought, like not to have thought about it. And even decades into it, it's still like, as much as people talk about denial and skepticism, the, the misplaced and stuff, up until very, very recently, I don't think you can blame that many people for, for uh, being skeptical about it. And now that to me, the evidence is overwhelming, there's a little too much plastic in the ocean, maybe a lot too much plastic in the ocean a little too much mercury in the groundwater, sea levels rising. I'm like, this is an opportunity. This could be one of the greatest turnarounds ever. Look at what we can do. I mean, yeah, there's going to be trouble. The trouble's already there, right? You just look at the headlines. But there's been trouble before. And a lot of people think, well, we're already too, it's too late to do anything. Even if things go, even if there's some big collapse, there's levels of collapse. There's a lot of people, like the population dropping a lot, the population dropping a little. I want to be part of that, of making a difference. I, sorry, I'm just, what you said no, I, with what, what I, you're saying. Yeah, what you're saying is what I feel on a daily basis. It's why we work so hard. You know, and, and, and I, think about, I think about it a lot. And I don't mean to be morose at all. But I, I think we're entering into a very, very, very different phase of, of our existence as a species than we've ever experienced before. And, you know, I get excited when I see a swallowtail butterfly twice a summer. Mm-hmm. As a child, I remember seeing them all over the place, you know, the bees and the butterflies and the dragonflies. And, and so I make sure that my, I bring my son and he sees it, right? And we talk about it because those little moments are fleeting. And I, I do think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But I also firmly believe what you're saying, that 
this is an amazing opportunity. Never before have we had the technology at our fingertips that we do now. And our understanding of how the universe works and our understanding of how we interact with the environment and when we do that, what happens, we've never had this level of understanding before. And so what we do with that is the question. Are we going to come together and are we going to do that for for ourselves as a species, for our kids, for our and it's not it's not a short term perspective that we have to take. It's a long term, right? So over the course of the next hundred years, what am I doing today that's going to improve the situation? And I think what I'm doing with my children is I'm showing them how to fight. I'm showing them every single day how do you have intention? How do you set that intention? And how do you be as good of a human as you possibly can? And how do you work towards a hundred year vision? that you have not for yourself or for your child, but for their existence. And I find that the route to get to where you are from the beliefs of if I act, but no one else does, and what difference does it make? Or, oh, these little things are so small. What difference does it make? I'm not going to bother. But those big things are so big, it's too much work. Both of which lead to, it's a palliative feeling, a belief that gets you to inaction. I would much rather talk the way you're talking I'm doing everything I can. I'm involving my kids in every way, like in a deep, meaningful, purposeful way. And the way to, to get there is through action, to me. Because a lot of people just go around talking like, well, but what about, you know, I don't know. They talk about academic abstract stuff. Whereas if you pick up a bunch of straws off the ground and put them in the trash can, even though that's not even lowering the amount of plastic, it's just moving it from one place to another, but at least landfill, I guess, is, is marginally better. It still is, still is better than in the ocean. Actually, I'm going to tell you a story about making a difference if you don't mind. And then I, no, want to I would love to hear it. <laughs> so I've, as a result of John Lee Dumas was on my podcast and his challenge he took on was picking up garbage from the beach uh, once a month. He lives near the beach in Puerto Rico. I don't know if you know him. He's a big podcaster. And uh, he really enjoyed it. And I'd been thinking about plogging for a while, but I had never gotten around to it. So plogging, you probably know. Mm-hmm. The jogging, know. picking up trash while you jog. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From the Swedish, the name came from the Swedish. And I've been meaning to do it for a while. And when I heard him talking about that, I was like, uh, I got to start plugging. If this very successful man will bend over and pick up a little garbage by himself. So I started plugging. In New York, it's a challenge because if you pick up every piece of trash you pass, you're not going to get one block. <laughs> but if you plan of how to do it, you're never going to get started. So you just got to go. And so I made a rule. I made a set of rules to make it possible. So some of the rules are that I, I don't have to go out of my way to pick stuff up. It, if it's on my path within like a foot or two, from the, my path, I'll pick it up. But if it's not, I'm not going to pick it up. And then if it's like smaller than a cigarette butt, cigarette butts are just too numerous. I'm not going to pick them up. And because then I'm never going to get a block. And if it's wet, if it's like a, a tissue, forget it. I'm not going to pick that up. Someone else can pick it up. I mean, some people yeah. plug with gloves and I, I don't want to do that. And uh, if it's in a puddle, I'm not going to pick it up. I can, but usually I don't. And usually I do it only if there's um, a trash can nearby within a block or two because I don't want to bring a bag with me. I just drop it off in the trash can. And I, I try to. I have to balance this. Uh, and I try to balance doing it in a showy way so that people see me while looking like I'm not trying to show what I'm doing. Because I want to, I guess in your language, I want to start a conversation. Anyway, so one time I go running, I run from my house down to the river. Then I run along the river and run back up. And I run down the bike path on Christopher Street. And when I'm running, like what difference does it make? I know that within a couple hours after I run, it's going to be back to the way it was before. But when I come back up, this, this is like the second time I did it. As I'm running up the hill that I had run down, I'm running exactly on the path that I ran down. And as I'm running, I notice there's garbage to my left and garbage to my right, but not directly in front of me because I cleaned it. It was like the Red Sea in front of me. And I was like, I made a difference. 
even if it goes away after a little bit, I made it different. Like I clean my world. I'm cleaning in a, I'm running in a clean environment and it felt so good. I made it, it, it like it was right there in front of my face, a difference that I made. And it actually, and it wasn't even taking time out of my life. I, I was substituting running with some lunges thrown in from running without lunges thrown in and a little bit <laughs> out of my way to throw it in the trash can when I get to the corner. And it's not fun. It's rewarding. Anyway, so as I mentioned before we started recording, I ask people, why work on the environment? There's other things you could work on. What does the environment mean to you? I grew up, I'm, I'm part of the environment. I grew up, so um, my background, which very few people know, is I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. My mom went up to Alaska when I was tiny to work on the pipeline. So she was, um, she worked in Alaska. She helped build it. And I grew up in a one-bedroom cabin without water or electricity. You know, we had a little, little garden at the back raised a turkey, a couple of geese, some chickens, some rabbits. But being in Alaska, like life is hard, you know, and especially if you don't have electricity or running water, like it's really, really hard. And so you, I think for me, I was, I was always in the environment. And I always had this healthy respect for the environment. I knew the environment could kill me. <laughs> the grizzly. Like, like that. <laughs> Anything, the cold, the grizzly, I mean, you name it, like it could just kill you. And so I think I've always had a really healthy respect for it, but I've always been really connected to it. I was also a Girl Scout. I spent a lot of time doing cleanups when I was a kid and a lot of time at, at outdoor camps and, you know, doing things that made me be outdoors. And so I've always, I've always been outside. I've always enjoyed the environment and the outdoors. And, and I think I just always had a natural inclination to it. I'm a psychologist by training. I worked in corporate America for a long time. I worked for Arthur Anderson. I worked at at Microsoft. But I always keep coming back to the environment. I always keep coming back to you know, how do we do more with what we have? And how do we leave a really light footprint? And I honestly, I have to say, I think it's because I really love hot showers. I think if we want to like boil it down into why the environment, it's because I don't ever want to go back to not having running water or indoor plumbing. Like never again, and not having electricity. Like I love, I love hot showers. I love taking a long hot shower. I don't want to, I don't ever want to go back to not having it. Like now that I have it, I'm going to fight for it. <laughs> I, I mean, that might be really selfish. <laughs> but I think that's what it is. I think that for, as an individual level, at a mom level, I have a very different answer for you. You know, but for me as an individual, I want to make sure that we've got the resources that we need to be able to sustain life. And life for me means a hot shower. It, you know, it means something very different for a lot of other people. Yeah, actually, this is one of my favorite parts of this podcast is that answer. Not, not your particular answer, but... For me, it's rewarding to hear what people say because everyone's, what they say is so unique and meaningful. And based on what you said about your connection with Alaska, with your childhood and what nature means to you now, I wonder if you would be willing to take on a challenge, something to live by those, those values, something you don't have to change all the world's problems overnight or fix all the world's problems overnight, but something that makes a difference and not telling other people what to do. So something that allows you to act on this. And for a lot of people that have acted a lot already, it's hard because sometimes there's less on the, on the plate for them. But I wonder if, if there's something you could act on that would make a difference. So when I think about you know, our life as a family, there's a lot of things that we've done already to you know, decrease our, our impact, um, our footprint on the earth. And there are things that are harder to give up, especially being the mom of a young child. But one thing that drives us crazy 
and we have not even started to tackle it. So I'm, I'm putting it out there as like, I feel like it's one of the harder things for us to do, but I want to do it. Uh-huh. Um, is tackling all of the, all of the wasted food that we have in our family. So we do a good job of, of shopping for what we need. We go to the farmer's market. We don't, we don't buy in excess. But then because we get so busy in our lives, we go out to eat a lot. <laughs> be like, you know, instead of making broccoli pizza, we're, we just go to the restaurant because <laughs> uh-huh. it's easier. And then what happens is that broccoli gets nasty and rotten, and then we end up composting it. And, and while that's good, you know, composting is good, I would say probably on, a, on an every other week basis, we're probably throwing away like 10 pounds of food easily just from our little household of three people. So I want to tackle food waste in my own family. I think that's the big challenge for us, for me. Look at how I just diffused that to me and my husband. Nope, it's me. I want to tackle food waste in my household. (laughs) So if I understand you right, you buy the right amount of food and then you eat out and suddenly the right amount of food ends up being too much food and stuff that would have been good to eat ends up in the compost. That's right. Okay. That's right. So I'm just wasting great food that was meant for the plate that week. Okay. So can we make it into a smart goal where it's something specific, uh, meaningful, uh, what specific? Measurable. Miserable. Measurable. <laughs> measurable. Measurable. <laughs> they said miserable and uh, actionable, realistic <laughs> and time-based. Because yes. what, what I'd like to do is to have so, you time and describe how the experience was. And so enough time for okay. it to take root. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, when I think about it, like just saying to decrease food waste, I think would be an impossible task for me because I like by how much and that that feels really big and there's always going to be waste. You know, no matter how good of a job I do, I'm sure I will fail every single week. But if I think that we are probably disposing of 10 pounds-ish, you know, give or take a carrot, uh, 10 pounds, (laughs) uh, I think it's probably realistic for us to, um, you know, before the end of November, so before the end of the month, within like a three, four week period is to cut that in half. So if, if I can, if I can uh, compost no more than five pounds of food every two weeks, that to me feels like a, it feels attainable, realistic, time bound. It's smart. I think it's overall, I think it's smart. I think it's specific. It's measurable. Yeah. No more than five pounds every two weeks. Okay. Now, do you weigh it or just kind of eyeball it? It's fine with me either way. I just kind of eyeball it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my child weighs about 35 pounds. And so I'm pretty good at figuring out like what 10 pounds. Okay. <laughs> so it's about the eyeball. And, but it's also, you know, it's also like, this is like a fifth of my child. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and I see it, like I hear laughing about it. So even though you describe it for many So people, that's fear. That's fear-based laughter. Don't let that fool you. That is fear-based. That is, oh my God, I just, I just put something out there publicly and now I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> uh, I think I read that you wanted to do it. I mean, it's something, it sounds I want like, to do it. Yeah, there's something on your mind that was like in the, in the back. I said it partly because I think a lot of listeners have something on their mind that I'm not there in their ear to say like, what's the value of yours and what's the way that you could act on that value. But I bet if people, now I'm kind of talking to them, if they look inside and think of what's the value what does the environment mean to me? Is there something I can act on? I bet they come up with it and they'll have that same fear, but maybe they'll also get to that laughter as well. I have that same fear. I have that same fear. Yeah. But I, well, I'm, I'm confident I can do it. Well, cool. So we'll set an appointment for 
two weeks, if that's okay with you, and to so the listeners can hear how it went. So let's do three weeks. Let's do three weeks. And uh, so I'm going to up the ante a little bit since Thanksgiving is just two weeks from now. Uh-huh. I'm going to up the ante and let's see if I can actually consume all of that Thanksgiving leftovers. I'll take photos. Consuming, I, I, this is me just thinking out loud, but I think it'll be a mix of consuming what's there, but also not buying. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you, you know you're shopping. Which is like right? the impossible task for Thanksgiving, right? Yeah. Like how much food are you supposed to have? I know it's crazy, right? That's so a big challenge. It's like a, it's like a triple whammy, is what this challenge is. And if I can do it during Thanksgiving, I can do it. I can do it always. This is what leaders say. This is how leaders talk. I hope people listening are thinking <laughs> I, I want to be like Dune. So um, <laughs> I like to close with asking: Is is there anything I didn't think to ask? Is there any message you want to leave the listeners before the next time? So the message I, I'll leave um, the listeners with: I'll start there. Is you know one thing that I've really learned from my time with Paul and now. Uh, working with Adrian at Lonely Well is that it doesn't it doesn't matter what you do. Everything every single person does on a daily basis makes a difference. The important thing is just to do something, and just and just lean into whatever the issue is. Is it an environmental issue? Is it a social issue that you care deeply about? If it is, then just do something. Don't make it too hard. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Don't worry about the checklist. Don't worry about what comes first, what comes second, or last. Just do something. And have some fun with it and invite a friend. Like there's, it's, it's kind of, sometimes it's kind of boring to do it by yourself. So do it with somebody else and have fun doing it. Like, but the important thing is, is like lean into the issue that you care deeply about and tell us about it at Lonely Well. We want to know what you do because it will inspire our audience to do more of what other people can do as well. So just do something, you know, don't be afraid to try and to lean in. And, and when we all lean in together, then we can make a difference. And but it takes every one of us to do something. So just try it. Try one thing. I love that that message is so, it, it leads to fun through the opposite of what holds so many people back of like, what differences do what I make? Everyone, yes, I agree that everything that everyone does makes a difference. Dune Ives, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. How refreshing to have someone take such a heavy, hard subject for so many other people and make it lighthearted and still effective. I'm glad that scientists and journalists have got us this far, but other branches of society and institutions have learned to lead a lot more effectively than science has. I'm glad that Lonely Wheel is picking things up. I'm a fan of doing what works. So for yourself, if you haven't already, and straws or plastic waste mean something to you, start with straws. Talk about them. Once you master handling straws so that no more come your way, then take the next step. Cups or something bigger. Or if straws and plastic don't resonate with you, What does? What are your values? What's the equivalent of straws in that area? Can you act on that? If you can, act on that. Or if you're thinking about starting your own initiative, take a lesson from her that starting will lead to more success than just thinking about starting. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and 
Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.